before we begin this podcast, uh, I feel like there are some things to clear up. One, I'm from Western North Carolina, and our special guest is from South Carolina. It comes up. Be prepared. Also, Colleen is not Russian, no. although she is often in a hurry. Um, <laughs> again, this will come up. You'll understand. Keep listening. Hey, it's Hannah. And I'm Colleen. And this is your friendly neighborhood podcast about living in Iraq. Where we both lived for combined 11 years. That's right. So we know all the things. Except for the things we bring in the guests for. So this week, we're going to get into the history of Iraq. And we have a very special guest. Yay! Yay! Dave, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. Would you introduce yourself briefly? I am Dave. Dave Dillard. I'm the director of Servant Group International. And uh, I've been around a long time. Probably... (laughs) Worked with the organization 25 years and been director for about the last 15. Love working here with you guys. It's great to be here late on a Friday afternoon. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, extra special. So, Iraq is our topic, the history specifically. Why should we care? Well, in recent years, um, just in my lifetime, I believe we've had two or three or four wars in Iraq. Um, It's just an area of the world that keeps popping up into the news about every 10 or 20 years. And a lot of that is because we don't understand what the region is about and its history and its tendencies. So it's important from that perspective. It's important because it is at the crossroads of East meets West. Mm -hmm. It is in a very historic place where a lot of the most uh, famous and most creative cultures ever flourished. It's home to 50 million people. It's been a troubled home for them, and we should care about that too. That's That's a lot of history to cover. So we're going to start with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Do you think the Garden of Eden was in Iraq? Let's start there. (laughs) People have asked me that before. Well, if you you look for land between the Tigris and Euphrates River, that pretty much narrows it down to where? Iraq. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The Fertile Crescent is Iraq, and it's that area. And uh, I believe a lot of... Historians would sort of point to the area of Samir or Samir as where uh, the Garden of Eden may have been. But uh, yeah, the Tigris and Euphrates River and the Fertile Crescent, it was an area of, um, you know, if you drive around Iraq, a lot of it's not green and, and lush, but there are areas that are. And in between the two rivers was fertile land and it flooded each year and stayed fertile and people could develop cities and societies in that area and not just uh, keep chasing the wild animals around for food. <laughs> <laughs> so they, how long did they stay just kind of like nomadic people doing whatever they wanted to do? I think the earliest that they found areas where uh, people had settled into cities is in the neighborhood of, I believe, 6,000 years ago. They find uh, signs of agriculture and domestication of animals. Mm-hmm. Of course, you have the invention of the wheel and um, the first iPhone. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, not really. <laughs> really? But you guys have been, you've lived in Iraq, and you know that there's about 
four or five different tombs of Noah, and there's three or four tombs of Habakkuk, and Daniel lived in seven different cities at the same time. I mean, the Bible figures were all over the land, and everybody claims a piece of it, for sure. Yeah, that was one of the interesting things. I remember hiking one of the mountains, and they're like, oh, this is Sarai Mountain, and they have this whole story about how Sarai, like, stood on this mountain, and, like, Abraham took a trip, and, like, she stood on this mountain waiting for him to come back or something. Yeah. There are different dynasties, empires, I guess, Mm -hmm. that come through in the Bible. The Persians are a really big part of that. and Yeah, the Assyrians Assyrians. and Babylonians. Mm -hmm. And so can you talk a little bit about how those influenced just kind of generally the history there? Yeah, and I think if you look at Iraq today, there are parts of Iraq then that play into it. And again, as you lived in the city, I mean, when you drive out into the country in Iraq, how many homes do you see? Not very many. Once you leave the city, what's what's there? In villages, sheep, sheep, but rocks. there's not much. Yeah, rocks. Right. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's, that's the name, a rock. But yeah, once you get out of the city, there's not much, and it is a, it is an area that developed. We could talk a little bit about the strongman mentality, but as as cities, people would gather together in cities for refuge, mm-hmm. and they would um, want a strongman over them that they would they would pledge allegiance, if you will, or loyalty. Uh, to their strongman, to the leader, to their regional king, to their sheik, and they would in turn provide protection for them, and they would be in that little city. So you had it wasn't so much nations developed to start with; it was sort of city states around Babylon and Samir and around Nineveh. But then they grew to control more and more area. But it was a it was a region of constant turmoil in that one civilization would rise up and uh, displace another, and this would happen again and again. And again, but people would still gather into cities and want a strong ruler over them because a strong ruler, though, here in America we like think a strong ruler. We're like, yeah, why would anybody want a dictator or a, or a mean king or something? But there is a sense in certain places of the world that that's your best protection if he's on your side. Mm-hmm. You know, that's how you that's how you make it. That's how so you survive. If he's brutal and ruthless, then your enemies will fear you and won't come. Your enemies you. will fear, and so you either. Either your village is going to get attacked or you're going to attack somebody else's village and it's better to be on the offense if you want to hang around. So so were Assyrians, Babylonians, and Persians, did they reflect that in their... Yes. they were a little bigger. They were bigger, but they would come in and displace one another. Perhaps when the Assyrians moved in, that was perhaps the most militant of the groups that came in. They had a practice of not just uh, subduing the population, but then picking them all up and moving to another area of displacing. Mm-hmm. And we see that, you know, if you look back into the late 1980s, you can see that even Saddam Hussein, uh, like the city of Kirkuk, Kurds were moved out and Arabs were moved in to put the right population in the right area so you have allegiance. Mm-hmm. So the Assyrians were pretty much authors and experts at that practice. So it's almost like a forced melting pot where... In the U.S., you know, there's kind of that natural mixing that happens. In the Middle East, they were kind of forced to, like, we're going to take you out of your homeland and move you over here yeah. and yeah. blend in or... Yeah, and as you roll through the years, if you look at the you look at the land of Iraq, particularly in modern times, but you can... Here in America, you have the sense that, well, I'm an Italian-American, I'm an African-American, I'm a... Uh, well, you're American. from Russia, right? No, <laughs> Moscow. No, <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Well, no. So yeah, you, so you have uh, Americans of different ethnic descent, but in Iraq, you know, if somebody's ninth century BC was Assyrian, they're Assyrian, and they're not they're not Iraqi. They don't assume 
a new identity that you are mm-hmm. what your ancestors were, and you're going to stay that way. Yeah. So they have a. It's more important for them to keep track of their kind of historical ethnicity. It is. I mean, when's the last time you met a Mead? Uh, n- never. Never. But if you listen to the national anthem of Kurdistan, it says we are the sons of the Medes. Unless they've changed it recently. I mean, yeah, met lots of people who said they were Assyrians or Chaldeans or, you know, and definitely even the Kurds. Mm-hmm. They may associate even with the Medes, but their identity is still being Kurdish, not necessarily being Iraqi. Right. So you had these different civilizations come in and displace one after another. But eventually what happened, I mean, we could go through the Akkadians and the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Sumerians and... I've got the orders all mixed up. But (laughs) at some point, you had the rise of two great empires, and that was Persia, and you had the Greeks, and but you had these the east and west pushing back and forth across Mesopotamia. And it sort of became the, the, um, it wasn't necessarily the prize, it was the um, clashing point, the intersection of the two cultures of Darius and others of the Persian Empire wanted to travel all the way west, and Alexander and others wanted to go all the way east. And so Iraq, if you will, Mesopotamia, if you will, is caught right in the middle of this. And just sort of became a uh, place to pass through and have wars, but not necessarily a place that you're going to settle down. I remember in Erbil, the big battle between Alexander the Great and Darius is called the Battle of Arbella. Mm-hmm. Like, it's it's like right next to there. Yeah, in the plains of Erbil. Yeah. So, yeah. They've been kind of a place that's been fought over for a long time. But not fought over to be like, we want to settle this very fertile area and like live here so much as we want to get through here so that we can get on. Because there's not a lot of like, like you were saying, there's not a lot of like villages and necessarily a, a whole lot of... It wasn't necessarily like the but, prize, but right? I think I think Mesopotamia or the land of Iraq, as we inch closer and closer to the days of World, World War One was... Was, and even after that, is a uh, area of a buffer zone, if you will. Okay. You don't want the Persians right next to you, so let's push them out of Iraq. You don't want the Greeks right next to you, let's push them out of Iraq. Let's, let's, you don't want the Turks in here that close, so let's push them back. You don't want the Mongols in here this close, so let's push them back. So mm. it became a, a buffer zone, if you will, not necessarily mm-hmm. the prize. Though there are quite a few cultures that developed quite a few dynasties, cultures, amazing things happened in the city of Babylon, if you will, or mm-hmm. close to modern-day Baghdad now, that it became a prize, if you will. So then one of the next big things that happens after the Greeks, I mean, there's lots of pushing back and forth, like you said. Then what comes after that? The Ottomans? Like No, because before the Ottomans, we get to Islam, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that's a big shift for yeah. the area. Yes. So you have these different cultures that move in and out, and they sort of adopt the, the technology, the religions of the area. And if prior to, say, the, um, prior to the time of Christ, what you have across Mesopotamia, though some Jewish communities, you have a lot of uh, polyethe- poly- polytheistic. Yeah, and when their gods look like animals, you say anthro... Animistic? No, anthropomorphic. Anthropomorphic. Look it up. It's a it's a real word, sort of. <laughs> it is anthropomorphic. Yeah. 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 So you've seen. Uh, it's okay. I can't say Zoroastrian. Okay. <laughs> there you go. But you've been riding around rock, and you've seen. Oh, there's a picture of a lion with wings, and he's got a face like a monkey. Ma- you know. Uh-huh. Yeah. 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 You've seen all this stuff all over, even in the few gift two gift shops. Yeah. Yeah. So you see that. Um, yeah. So you'd have these different gods and different religions at the 
around, uh, was it 400, 500 AD, uh, the advent of the Islamic Empire, you had not just another culture move in, not just another army move in across Iraq, but you had an army that came with a religion of Islam that pushed in. And it was more than just, here comes um, the next leaders. It was like, here's a lifestyle, a system of belief, a system of faith, a system of culture, and it was sort of all comprehensive as it moved into Iraq. I guess in a few hundred years across most of the Middle East, but the land of Iraq, they made uh, Babylon, became the center of the Islamic Empire, and the caliphs, the leaders of Islam, would be based out of Babylon, and it just became a center of incredible science and math and knowledge and writing and understanding and poetry. And it was a um, it was the jewel of the world, if you will. That's why we have words like algebra, right? That are mm-hmm. an Arabic word, actually. And yeah. And if you look at the names of all the stars, they all sound Arabic. Oh, really? Yeah. So as the Islamic Empire moved into uh, the Middle East, they absorbed a lot of the wisdom and learning and science and advancements of the Byzantine Empire, which was subsiding by then. Sort of protected the arts and sciences hmm. for hundreds of years. So at that point, obviously, then there wasn't constant war there for a little bit if they're able to spend time on arts and sciences and stuff. Mm-hmm. The Islamic Empire covered how much of the Middle East at its largest? At its largest, larger than the Roman Empire, all the way from India to Southern Europe. Has a lot North of... North Africa. Yeah, yeah. 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 Hmm. So huge, and Babylon being the center of this. Now, you had a, a few interruptions from, from the Mongols, from... Uh, and Tamerlane sort of came in and ra- sacked, what's the word? Sacked. Sacked. Sacked, <laughs> sacked Babylon. So it, it had some struggles, but it was the center of the center of the world, if you will, for a lot of years while, uh, you know, our relatives were probably in Europe somewhere digging potatoes. They were doing algebra and measuring the stars. <laughs> <laughs> Fighting with each other and trying not to freeze to death in the yeah. cold Irish winters. Right, right. (laughs) Or Norwegian ones. Or Norwegian, Mm. yes. So what caused that to kind of come apart at the seams? Because, I mean, that's not still true. Part of the struggle the Islamic Empire had was how is it to be governed? And, you know, you see in the news all the time now about, you always hear about two groups fighting each other. What are they? Uh, Shia and Sunni. Yeah, do you know the difference between them? I should know it better than I do. It has to do with leadership. Yeah, yeah. Right. the descendant whether it should be Muhammad, someone yeah. actually like related, relative or someone or not someone related but appointed. Yeah, and who is related? So it's it's a big question. But basically, you have these two groups, and the Shiites and Sunnis disagree on the leadership of Islam. Muhammad uh, perhaps did not leave a very clear cut leader after him, and it's it's been a point of contention. Uh, not just contention, it's been a point of wars. And uh, this sort of picked away at the Islamic Empire, if you will, to try to hold together a whole empire where there's two groups, mm-hmm. or really more like 20 groups, that right. don't really appreciate each other. So it was a, quite a struggle, began falling apart around the edges. It was a lot of land to manage as well. Um, and as they became focused on the, the edges of their empire, the inside, the middle part of it, Iraq, if you will, just sort of fell back into having being led and governed by local chieftains and local local rulers. All right, so you had you had Shiites and Sunnis continue to struggle for control, and one of the strongest set of rulers that rose up was the Ottoman, 
was the Ottoman Empire, which was the, Sunni. The little things that you put your feet on. No, they put their feet on everything else. <laughs> they were a huge empire. It lasted um, probably 600 years up till the the end of World War One, or about the start of World War One. Uh, but constantly picked away at by Iran had large uh, Shiite populations. Iraq had a large Shiite population. And sort of picking away at the Sunni leadership, if you will. And so mm -hmm. the Ottoman Empire was having a struggle sort of holding together at the same time when Europe was starting to develop the nation-state model and becoming stronger and stronger. So you had a shift in balance of world power from the Ottomans, if you will, to Europe. And where were uh, the Ottomans? The Ottomans were centered in Babylon, but also modern-day Istanbul. Yes. Turkey. Yes. So they picked away at the edges of it the the Ottoman Empire was, I don't know, I think if you look back, and this is part of what goes into shape what modern-day Iraq is as well, is the Ottoman Empire at one time, for a lot more years than America's been around, and a lot more years than Russia's been around, was the world's superpower. Mm -hmm. And was, just as centuries later, you would have the British Empire, or then you have the world's superpowers of the U.S. or mm -hmm. of Russia. Well, the Ottoman Empire was like this. It was the world power for centuries, much longer than any of these others were. So there's a sense of, we were once great, we were once at the top of the game, at the top of the world, and we're not mm -hmm. now, and, and something went wrong, and we sort of want it back. And you can hear some of that talk coming out of Turkey today as well, mm -hmm. that we mm -hmm. want to restore what was. The golden age. Mm -hmm. The golden age. So what then made the golden age fall apart? I mean, obviously they've got, yeah, you said the nation states in Europe, you know, Iran, why didn't they, as the superpower, just wipe everything out. As the nation-states in Europe rose up, there was technology there, there was industry there, there was finances and resources there, and the Ottoman Empire was just busy trying to hold its little edges together and just couldn't mm -hmm. compete, I think, economically and militarily, probably could not continue to compete with the developing nations around it. Well, and it had the, that disadvantage of being so large. Yeah. How do you manage something that manage big? Some, right, where, you know, the Germ German people only had to worry about Germany or... I mean, in some ways, you think about the fall of the British Empire as a... Right, similar. Like, you've, you've stretched yourself out all over the globe. It's really mm -hmm. hard to defend, let alone manage that. Yes. One thing that always surprised me is that the Ottoman Empire was around when World War I started. Mm -hmm. Like, in my mind, the Ottoman Empire, like, ended well before then. And it was just like, oh, Turkey. But they were still the Ottoman Empire. It was more yeah. than just Turkey. I don't fully know, like, how it became just Turkey. That's, like, a part of history that I'm I'm fuzzy on. Well, the Ottomans, when World War One began, they picked sides. And who did they ally themselves with? I assume the side that lost. Right, Germany. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> they chose poorly. So, yeah, they picked the wrong side. And when the war was over, people uh, divided it up. Yeah. So they okay. allied themselves with Germany. And so was that, so that included, before World War One. it would be Turkey included, or the Ottoman Empire was Turkey, Syria, Iraq. Jordan. Jordan. Saudi Arabia. Lebanon. Um, oh, yeah. so it was like all... Yeah, all of what we think it has shrunk from what it was, but it wasn't. It was still huge. Yeah, all wow. the Middle East. Yes. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, because again, in my mind, it's like, oh yeah, Turkey. Of course they lost, but no, they were they were big. Yeah. 
you know, at the start of World War One or even before then, the British were very interested in Mesopotamia because do you know what the jewel of the British Empire was? Jerusalem? No. I don't know. Hmm. Well, they say in India, India because it had what they have in India. Tea. Tea, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. They love their tea. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> they wanted an easier way to get back and forth with their tea. And oh, so, they didn't want to have to go all the way around the Africa. tip of Africa. Right, right. So, so a land route through there mm-hmm. would be pretty nifty. Because right. there is already like the Silk Road kind of existed mm-hmm. already. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But Which it's is just, not a real road. Right. And it was. <laughs> Dang it, it's not a real road. Um, it's just a general direction. General direction. But, like, there was trade going back and forth, but right. it wasn't, like, they couldn't control that. So the British were in there making deals with, at this point, the central leadership of the Ottoman Empire is sort of is frazzled. So they're in there making deals with small chieftains and sheiks and tribal leaders and stuff, sort of, can we, you know, cut through this area? Can we cut through your backyard? Can we cut around your side lot here? Mm-hmm. And at the same time, Germany's in there doing the same thing. The Germans want to build a railroad from Berlin all the way to Kuwait. And that was their goal. That would have been awesome. Well, they got pretty far. So they were uh, they were going to try to get the whole trade route across the Middle East. So they're in there as well doing this. And so when the war breaks out, the Ottomans decide to ally themselves to the Germany, I guess because they have a railroad. Mm-hmm. They can be part of, the whole, part of the whole equation there. So they worked together in the war. Um, but then when this war breaks out, right before the war sort of breaks out, there's another British, the British become interested in something besides just tea in India. Spices? I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, spices. That's what I think of. They find something on the way there. Oil? Yeah, oil. And oil starts becoming important because Europe is becoming industrialized and the um, secretary of the British Navy decided to convert all the ships from coal to fuel. Oh. And that was Winston Churchill. Good old Winston. Yeah. <laughs> I saw him on public TV last night. I thought he was dead. <laughs> I don't think so. He was in black and white, but he was, okay. he was visiting the president. So the British, they're, they're coming through uh, Mesopotamia, if you will, and they're originally you know, trying to get their tea back on a shortcut, and uh, there's all this oil there. You know, particularly around areas like Kirkuk, mm-hmm. um, and then more towards the south, towards Kuwait. So when the war starts and the Ottomans ally themselves with the Germans, and the British are fighting against the Germans, then all of a sudden all the British oil wells are in enemy territory. Right. And they're like, this is not good. So they send in troops, and um, they send in... Did you ever see the movie Lawrence of Arabia? No. It's oh, you should really watch long. that. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I've never been willing to... To jump into the that. The car one chases myself. are great. Car chases. They're like camels, aren't they? <laughs> okay, camel chases are great. So the British come in and start trying to convince some of the different tribes, like, help us fight against the Ottomans, help us fight against the Germans, and when this war is over, we'll set you up your own country. So they tell that to the Arabs. And then they go meet with the Kurds. Hey, yeah, there's this war that's getting ready to happen. Help us defeat the Ottomans, help us throw off the Throughout the Germans and the Ottomans, when the war is over, we'll give you your own country. Then they go to the Syrians and tell them the same. So you've got all these people thinking, well, I'll help the British, and when things are over, I'll have my own country. But all these countries are in the same place. Promises, promises. Yeah, so that didn't go so well. So uh, the different tribes and such did help in the fight, but when the war was over, there was not handing it back to them for their own country necessarily. But it 
did get turned into countries. Mm -hmm. How did that happen? Okay, so the war is over. The Ottomans lost. Ha ha! <laughs> the Germans are out. The British are in, and the British and French look at the Middle East and go, "Okay, the Ottoman Empire's gone. We need to chop this land up and control it and figure out figure out what we're going to do with it." So, what is it called? The Sykes-Picot Agreement. I, you can Google it up to see a picture of the map. But they sat down and they drew lines on the map, a lot of straight lines where there never were lines before, and said, mm -hmm. okay, we'll make this area, Syria will make this area, uh, the rock mandate will make this area, a place called Kuwait, and we'll make Turkey this size now. They just sort of drew lines and divide up the land. Uh, some people say randomly, but it wasn't really randomly. There was also a sense of, if we divide this land up, let's not put all the Shiites in one country. If we do, they'll get, they can all unite and be real strong. Mm -hmm. Let's not put all the Sunnis in one country. Let's not put all, the Turks, let's not certainly not put all the Kurds in one country. They're very strong, fierce warriors. So let's let's divide them up as well. So let's let's draw these lines and draw these countries so that the populations within them will always be at tension with them within themselves mm -hmm. and probably not super strong and rise up and be another empire we have to deal with. Which is kind of British strategy. Anywhere they went in the world was. If we can keep people fighting amongst themselves, then we have control over them. Because they did it in India, and they did it in Africa, and they did it with even Jerusalem in a lot of ways. Yeah, they tried to do it with North Carolina and South Carolina. Yeah, that didn't work out. <laughs> Western North Carolina and the rest of West of North Carolina, sure. Yeah. But not North and South. So they drew these lines, and they had the different areas. And the idea was, let's um, let's control this for a while and let it become its own country. They did end up uniting um, the tribes across Iraq, if you will, but it wasn't uh, united like, okay, well, now we're going to have our own country, we're going to be like Europe, we're going to start having a nation state and a flag and all this kind of stuff. What they united them in was a sense of, hey, you told us we get our own country, we don't now, and we don't like you guys anymore. And we're all united in the fact that we don't like a Western power over hanging mm -hmm. over top of our head. So it did unite them, but not, unite not in the way they thought. Right. Yes. Common enemy. Yeah, so there was a sense with, if we come in with a um, civilization and some tea and parliament and some highways and some hospitals and a constitution and a nice flag and, everything, and, a, and a king, we can make this thing, a country can be like a European kind of country thing mm -hmm. going on. And that didn't work. And I think we've seen that tried again and again. And decades that followed to come in and and sort of here's you a country on a platter here's here's a recipe for a country for a western style country it should work and we just keep bumping our heads into that because they're not western they're culture not western culture right. well and even western culture historically started with strong men too to some extent like we had kings Thinking of Britain specifically, they had a king for a long time. Mm -hmm. and Who, you know, constantly going to war with the French and the Germans and the whoever Germans they wanted. And to then be like, okay, now this new country that we've made up, we're going to skip the king part and go right to parliament or yeah. self-governance. Yeah. And I know in... Uh, European countries, like if you go to Spain, they're not all Spaniards, that's the right word, Spanish. Mm -hmm. You have different people groups, and you have different people groups in France, and you have different people groups. I don't know about Holland, I think they're all Dutch. There. <laughs> but you have have variety, but in the Middle East, you have variety on top of variety. Mm -hmm. Those of you here in America, you said, okay, we want to take all the First Nations of America, the Cherokee and the Sioux. 
the Sioux. And okay, they're all going to be their own country because they all live in the same piece of land called North America. So they're going to all be a country. But different languages, different customs, different history, different centuries of war with one another, different alliances, different allegiances. And so it's hard in the Middle East. There's not a sense of, okay, we're just all living the same land, so we're all going to wave the same flag. It doesn't really happen like that. So what how, what exactly made up Iraq specifically? Like, what all was in Iraq? Okay, Iraq. So they drew a little line around Kuwait and separated it. Kuwait was the, a trading partner with Baghdad historically for hundreds of years, but they separated Kuwait into its own country. Then, then you had, moving your way north, you had all of the Shiite uh, Iraq, if you will, the southern southern third of Iraq being Shiite Muslim. Mm-hmm. And then you get in the middle section where Baghdad is, and you have a large Sunni Muslim population, a Sunni Arab population. And then as you move um, north, getting closer to cities like Mosul, it transferred over into Assyrian, leftover Ottomans, if you will, and mm-hmm. Kurds, all the way to the north on into Turkey. So you had, as the borders were drawn around Iraq, you grouped together mostly Shiite Arabs, a bunch of Sunni Arabs, a bunch of Kurds, a bunch of Syrians, a bunch of Ottomans, and a bunch of about seven or other eight other minor groups that are scattered across Iraq. But all this grouped together into one country with one flag and one leader, and that was sort of a new concept mm-hmm. that has never stuck very well. But everything worked out just fine, and it's all going swimmingly. Obviously, that's not the end of the history of Iraq. Uh, but we didn't think you guys would want to listen to another hour of us talking about it. You have other things to do. So we're splitting this in two, and the next episode is coming your way soon. Keep your ears peeled. For all the British people listening, I, you know, I, I like your humor, I like your food, I like you. So. Yeah, Winston Churchill, man.